Linnaean. Linnaean. Linnaean Society. The Linnaean Society of, of London. London. Linnaean Society of London. Linnaean. Linnaean. Future. 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 2020 was a watershed year, a curve in humanity's graph that we will never forget. The coronavirus pandemic. But while lives changed worldwide, epidemiologists were not surprised. Many of them had been predicting a pandemic for years. And as many experts have pointed out, a changing climate and our indelible mark on the planet has a lot to do with the emerging disease crisis. In this episode, we talk to Professor Daniel Brooks, a super specialist in the evolutionary biology of pathogens and a fellow of the Linnaean Society. So we talk to him about how climate change is pushing the gas on this crisis, among many others. But pathogens are not our enemies. They just exist and survive and produce the next generation. They become nefarious when they cause problems for us. Pathogens, most importantly, are a part of this planet's story and its outstanding evolution. They don't come from nowhere and they don't disappear. They live alongside us, around us, and sometimes even within us. Here's Professor Brooks, who chats with us about the fascinating choreography between pathogens and hosts, escape and defense. My name is Dan Brooks. I'm an emeritus professor at the University of Toronto. Uh, I'm an evolutionary biologist, originally trained in the study of the evolution of parasites and parasite host systems. From that basis, I became interested in issues of biodiversity and conservation and sustainable development. And it was during those kinds of studies on in sort of basic research, so looking at parasites in wildlife and, and animals that, that nobody, was, nobody really cared very much about, that I and some colleagues of mine who were doing similar work in different parts of the world, we suddenly began to realize that we were seeing out in the wildlands, we were seeing the same kinds of changes in pathogen associations with their hosts that was becoming known as the emerging disease crisis in public health and, and veterinary health circles. And that was one of the things that gave us a key to understanding that, that what we were dealing with was a very general, and that means evolutionary, phenomenon. And so that's been... That was the, the, the conduit to, to my focus on climate change and emerging diseases and the evolutionary context of that. So uh, what is the ecological role of a parasite and how did they evolve? Do we need them? The first thing is that parasites or pathogens are not enemies. They, they're, they're not on this planet to cause trouble. Like all species, their primary activities are just in involving survival and producing the next generation. They, when the interactions with particular hosts and particular pathogens create what human beings perceive as problems, then we begin to think that there's something nefarious about these organisms. But the reality is that these are just all pathogens and by some estimates, Perhaps 50% of the species on this planet are, are pathogens of some sort, pathogens, parasites of some sort. So this is a very, very common phenomenon in nature. 
but it's, it's when they become a bother to us that we then begin to think that, that all of them are, are a problem. But the reality is that they are a natural part of the biosphere. They are part of the evolutionary story, part of this incredibly large, diverse, self-renewing biological phenomenon called evolvable life. And a corollary to that is that we need to remember that, that these pathogens do not magically appear and disappear. They're always there, whether they're causing headlines or not. They're in hosts in the biosphere somewhere, just normally leading their lives without causing a lot of, of headlines. But there are times when it appears that some public officials believe that pathogens are something that magically appear and disappear. Early on in the COVID pandemic, for example, the Associate Director for Emergency Response of the World Health Organization held a press conference in Geneva in which he said, and, and this is not an evolutionary biologist, this is an, an MD, this is a medical doctor, so you can perhaps forgive the, the ignorance a bit. But he said, well, the original SARS virus appeared from nowhere and then disappeared forever, and that's probably what's going to happen with this one. And I thought, this is a, this is a great statement of the, the kind of ignorance about basic evolutionary principles and basic understanding of the biosphere that hinders effective action by public health and veterinary health practitioners, clinicians, and officials. And this is something that hinders our, our public policy. Another thing that people tend not to realize is that we don't need the evolution of new genetic variants for a pathogen to move into a new host. Because in general, pathogens are restricted geographically. And within the geographic area where they, they occur, there may be a small number of hosts that are suitable for them. But outside that geographical area, there are almost always other hosts that are susceptible but have never been exposed. And if something happens that brings those pathogens into contact with the susceptible hosts that have never been exposed before, then the pathogen will immediately move into the new host without needing to evolve any kind of new genetic variation. But at the same time, once that happens, so the corollary of the fact that, you, that a pathogen can move into a host without new genetic variants, that also means that when the pathogens move into a new host, this sets the stage for new variants to emerge. And so it's not new variants allow host colonization, it is host colonization that allows the emergence of new variants. And that's exactly what we've been seeing with COVID. Many of the new variants that are now in the headlines were at extremely low levels or perhaps not even known until the virus moved into human beings and then was moved around the world and moved into dogs and cats and minks and, and things like that. So if it turns out then that this is a, a sort of a, a you know, evolutionary landmines waiting to be stepped on uh, uh, metaphorically, then that begs the question of, of whether or not there's a relationship between climate change and all of these emerging diseases. 
And it turns out that the relationship between climate change and emerging disease is, is profound, but extremely simple. It's almost you know, simple but elegant, just like Darwin's theory. And this is, more than anything else, climate change provokes and allows species to begin moving around. The climate changes, it gets too wet here, species move away. It gets too dry there, species move away. As species begin to move around, that's, that increases the chances that susceptible hosts will come into contact with pathogens they've never seen before. And so throughout evolutionary history, there's been a strong correlation between bursts of, of what we would call emerging diseases, that is changes in host allegiances by pathogens, correlated with episodes of climate change. Aren't some ranges also becoming restricted while others are expanding? So does that mean that some parasites will go extinct and some will proliferate? It's really not about geographic ranges per se. It's about interfaces. So if you have some species that appear to be contracting their ranges, that doesn't mean that there's, there's empty space between them and the rest of the biosphere. So in fact, we can't think just of, oh, these ranges are, are decreasing, these ranges are increasing. We think about what's happening as species expand and contract or move around is that they are altering their interfaces, their ecological interfaces with other species. Now this can be, you know, traditionally, historic or prehistorically, this would have been interfaces between different ecosystems, none of which are anthropogenically modified, okay? Now today, we still have vestiges of that, but in addition to that, we have all of the changes in habitat that human beings have created. And that has, has produced a new set of ecological interfaces for disease transmission, and that is the interface between the wildlands and what we would, might call managed landscapes, so agricultural lands. And what happens with these interfaces is that these are places where transmission of disease, of pathogens that cause disease in one of those ecosystems can occur while maintaining the pathogen in reservoir hosts in the other ecosystem where there is no disease being caused. So a, a good example for Europe right now would be something like African swine fever, which is reservoired in wild boar and causes great destruction and, and loss of revenue in the domestic pig market. What you have are pig farms where the pigs and the domestic pigs and the wild boar come into contact. It may only be through a fence, but they come close enough that vectors of disease, they can, they can exchange vectors of disease, they can exchange contact with each other, depending on the different diseases that can be transmitted. In the case of African swine fever, the wild boar come into contact with the domestic pigs at the, the fence line between the farm and the forest, the veterinarian comes in, vaccinates the pigs, and the next year the veterinarian gets to come back, vaccinate the pigs again, and charge money again. So it's, it's 
economically, it's a really good deal for the veterinarian. But in terms of actually controlling the disease, it's not very effective. We don't, and we don't think about that, the costs associated with that, because emerging diseases in, in food production, in, in livestock and crops, are simply rolled into the cost of business. And so, in, for example, three years ago, when there was a large uh, African swine fever outbreak in Hungary, pork prices doubled, but that was not blamed directly on African swine fever, okay? It was just the cost, yeah, our, our pigs got sick, we don't have as many pigs, so we right, raised the prices. But what we've discovered in our research is that when you look at the, the loss of production and the treatment costs, in crops and livestock and in human diseases, so all the, the full range of emerging infectious diseases, minimally, that has been costing the world more than a trillion pounds a year, even before something like COVID. All these little things put pressure on the infrastructure for healthcare, for crop and wild, wildlife and, and, and livestock and human welfare, so that when something like COVID comes along, we're not prepared and we're not capable of, of withstanding the outbreak. So I guess one obvious question here would be that if this has happened so commonly in our past and in the history of climate change, then why are we worried now? There are basic imprints of hum modern human civilization on this planet that actually intensify the dynamic that allows disease emergence to occur. Globalized trade and travel, for example, move pathogens all over the world, move susceptible hosts all over the world, much more than in, in usual, quote unquote, usual evolutionary times. Uh, urbanization concentrates enormous densities of human beings in, in one place, making them sort of stationary, large stationary targets for pathogens. And so this is why in 1956, the, the famous British ecologist Charles Elton, in his landmark book, ended the book by saying, humanity has never seen the magnitude of climate change that is coming at it. And we're not prepared. We're not prepared for it. And that's because what we have done simply adds to the background evolutionary dynamic. Because after all, we're part of that system. And, and so you can, never, you, know, you can never completely escape your history, but at the same time, you can, you can make it worse. And, and we have, strangely enough, in an attempt to make things better, we have in some ways made things worse. So in, in the, the book that we published in 2019, the subtitle of the last chapter is, it's nobody's fault, but everybody's to blame. And, yeah. and it's, you know, nobody has been intentionally trying to infect the planet with pathogens. But because we, we are, our public policies with respect to disease have not been based in, in solid evolutionary principles, in an attempt to do good things, we have ended up doing, doing, making things worse. But what a parasite sees is a never-ending horizon line of hosts. That's a wonderful way to put it. Public policies that deal with 
not just diseases, but also things like endangered species. Policies that, that are based on the assumption that species recognize national boundaries will always fail. In the context of highly endangered species, is climate change making them more vulnerable to um, emerging parasites, you know, newer parasites that could attack them? Or what are we seeing? Yeah, there are two ways in which climate change can affect susceptibility to disease. Okay. One way is that if some species are uh, not able to move away from climate impacted habitats. So if, if, you, if you are a species that generally needs a lot of moisture and, and the area where you live is, is drying up and for some reason you're not able to escape, you are going to be under a, a tremendous amount of stress, which as a byproduct will leave you more susceptible to infection and to those infections causing disease. Because oftentimes the, the, a disease that's manifested as a result of a pathogen infecting you is a combination of the impact of the pathogen plus your general condition, your, your general health condition. And so again, to fall back on COVID, this is one of the reasons that we find, find a very high number of people who are most severely affected and, and often fatally infected by COVID are people who had additional medical problems to begin with. And, and in some cases, previously un, undetected, undiagnosed medical conditions. So the first time this person found out that they had uh, lung, lung disease was when they, they got pneumonia from COVID and then they found out that, oh, there are these other problems as well. If you are a, a species that has a restricted geographic range and you're not able to escape, this doesn't mean that the rest of the biosphere is going to leave you alone. It means that the rest of the biosphere is going to intrude on you and whether that is human managed bios, biosphere or, or not, whether it's just the wildlands are, are going to encroach on you, that's going to increase the chances that you will be exposed to a pathogen that you're susceptible to but have never seen before. If you've never been infected by that pathogen, that means that, that you have, your, your population has no history of evolving resistance to it, for example. So initially, even if in other hosts that pathogen is not causing a huge disease problem, it's likely to cause acute disease in the new host simply because it's a new association. If, if the new host survives that in, initial interaction, then you have the, the natural equivalent of what's called herd immunity. That is, the, the, the members of the, the, the new host population that cannot abide with the, the pathogen will die. But the ones, the survivors, will not, they will either be resistant to the infection or if they are infected, they will not be diseased. And as a consequence, then, the, 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 the infection by the new pathogen the new pathogen coming into that host population will be absorbed and the host population will, will survive the event. Parasites can also be ultra-specific or generalists, right? Yeah, that's actually a, a, um, that is a traditional perspective that the world is made up of things that are specialists and things that are generalists. 
but it's actually more appropriate to think of species as being relatively specialized or relatively generalized depending on the environmental context where they exist. So for example, with the fig wasps, that was, that was one of the stories that, that I was brought up on. You know, each fig wasp has its own, own fig. And that's what, that's what we found beginning in the 1990s with these large-scale biodiversity inventories where we were looking at a wide range of, of different hosts, different vertebrate hosts, and we were finding that many of the species that were supposed to be in host A are now in host B. And why are these things moving around? Why aren't they in the right host? And it turns out that our, our thinking about what's sometimes called host specificity, that particular pathogens are so strongly adapted to just one host that, that that's, that's their entire life. It turns out that that's, that was an artifact of the little information we had about the inventory of biodiversity on this planet. And what we're now seeing is a lot of that, that appearance of extreme specificity and extreme, in, in a sense, extreme dependence on one host is just dependent on the context. And this is a, a phenomenon called ecological fitting. That in fact, wherever you are, whatever you're doing in a particular place, you will be as specialized as you can be doing that one thing in that one place. That doesn't mean that you have no capacity to do other things in other places if conditions change. So what we're seeing now is pathogens that were supposed to be just in one host, now moving into additional hosts, moving into new hosts, all at the same time, globally, across all groups of, of hosts. This appears to be a manifestation of a quote-unquote normal evolutionary response to environmental perturbation. And so in, in, a, in a really funny sense, the emerging disease crisis, if you look at it as, as a large global phenomenon, the emerging disease crisis is telling us that the biosphere is already beginning to respond to climate change. But here's the good news, because moving from one host to another does not require new and therefore unpredictable genetic characteristics. This means we can actually predict how pathogens are going to emerge into new hosts. So if I say, I know, for example, that when malaria returns to Europe, it will be transmitted by mosquitoes. It will be transmitted by mosquitoes in which the female mosquito takes a blood meal twice. See, some mosquito, female mosquitoes only drink blood one time. If they only drink one, blood one time, they can't transmit disease. So already we know which mosquitoes could possibly be the vectors, the new vectors of malaria when it comes to Europe. And the fact that we can anticipate a lot of what's going to happen means that effective prevention is actually possible. Should we, be, should we be looking at conservation of parasites or is that crazy? Well, there's nothing, there's nothing magical in a positive or a negative sense about pathogens. They just are. They're just part of the biosphere. 
And the reason I mentioned before what a, what a sizable percentage of the total biosphere pathogens are, that's to underscore the notion that it, it's, it seems very clear that pathogens have been extremely good about surviving major mass extinctions in the past. And so we can think about you know, the, the ultimate fate of pathogens. Will some of them go extinct? Yes. Will some of them proliferate? Yes. Uh, can we actually have any direct impact on it? Which ones survive and which ones don't? Probably not much. But we can, we can probably say with, with some confidence that a lot of pathogens are going to survive this, no matter what we try to do. And, I mean, think about the efforts that humanity has made in the last 150 years to eradicate targeted pathogens. I mean, with the exception of smallpox, we have not been able to do that. Even polio is still, not only is it, has it not been eradicated in some parts of the world, it's even resurging. Really have to have global cooperation. Not only do we have to cooperate with people, we have to cooperate with people we don't like because the pathogens don't discriminate. And so, you know, if, if you don't like your neighbor, but the best way for you to protect your children is to help your neighbor understand that a pathogen is coming there first so that they can stop it so it never gets to you. We have to be able to make that decision. We have to put aside all this other stuff that preoccupies us and say, okay, for the sake of the survival of all our children and grandchildren, we have to understand that coping with climate change and all the climate change stressors like emerging diseases requires that we put aside as much as possible the issues that keep us from cooperating well enough so that we can actually survive into the near future. Linnaean. 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 Future. 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 Future.